It is great to be back here at Faith Fellowship. What an awesome day it's been, right? And if you look outside just in the morning, it is beautiful, right? The flowers, it's full on summer. I'm a summer person myself, right? Full disclosure, probably my favorite season. Uh, when it rains for too many days straight, yes, I am one of those people who start to get depressed, right? I like the sun. It opens up. But today, as we continue in that Life of Christ series, we're going to be covering in the Gospel of John and talking about a blind man. So I want you to take a second and just think about how your day would be different in the way that you started coming here if you were blind. Now, we'll assume like the man here, you were completely blind from birth. So you would have your routines. You would be able to navigate You'd have areas that are familiar to you that you probably repeat over and over, but you wouldn't see the sunshine. You wouldn't know what it looks like. You might smell the fresh grass, but you wouldn't know the color. Right? You might look around and hear birds and bees buzzing around and moving, and you can sense that the movement is all around you, but you can't see the wonders that's there. It's something that uh, even this morning rings very true. Talking to Danny, he had some recent surgery, right? It makes you think about just sight and how important sight is and what it means to you, right? How disadvantaged you would be without sight. And that is the person that we come to today. The great part about this series and the message that we have is this story of Christ healing a blind man who was born blind is actually the sixth story of such miraculous healings in the Gospel of John. And it's six out of seven. Don't know if you knew or not, but all of these miracles, these special miracles, are designed to prove Christ's deity. Any miracle you see in the Bible that Christ did is for the purpose of proving that he is God. So when people say to you, well, what's the proof? There was never any proof. It's just a choice to believe. That is about as wrong as you can get. Thousands of people heard and saw the miracles that Jesus did in his time. And the gospel authors tell us that there were so many more that they couldn't list. They had to choose them. So the ones that they chose were very specific and had a very specific purpose. In John, the first three out of seven miracles show how a person is saved, and the last four show the results of salvation. So the first miracle is water to wine. It shows that there's baptism in Christ's blood instead of the baptism of water that was fully before him. Next, there's the healing of the nobleman's son. And that shows that through faith that you're healed and and you're saved. Then next, there's the healing the impotent man. And that shows by grace that you're saved. Finally, comes into the satisfaction that we get being saved when Christ feeds the 5,000. Right? All of our needs met. The peace that we get when he quiets the storm with the apostles. Today's message of the spiritual sight and insight that you get when you're saved. 
And last but not least, that'll be covered in the future here, maybe the coup de grace, is the everlasting life on display when he raises Lazarus from the grave and then promises to do the same for us. So besides these overarching lessons that I mentioned today in the passage, it also contains several things, I believe, that Jesus wants us to know, and specifically through his apostles, right? The word apostles really comes, or disciples, from the word that means to sit at their feet as a learner or to do life with them as a learner. Very different concept in the New Testament, right, and the early Jews when it comes to education than we have. We think about sitting in a classroom, going through outlines, learning certain subject matters, right? In them, to be a disciple meant to be with him and experience everything from morning to evening. And it starts off so wonderfully displaying how every single thing that the apostles experienced with Christ was a teaching moment for him. So let's go through and start, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to read, and I've already messed it up. Hold on. And then, oh, here we go. And then I'm going to read the entire chapter. And some of you may say, whoa, that's a lot of scripture to go through and teach. I'm going to teach it in three parts, and you'll catch on pretty quick. But first, bow your head with me. And uh, let me pray for us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask you now for your grace, your amazing grace, that we might have ears to hear, a heart to feel, a mind to understand, and a will to obey. Father, open our eyes, heal us like the blind man in the gospel today, that we may behold wonderful things from your word. Father, it's in your son's precious name that we pray these things this morning. Amen. All right, so turn with me, if you will, in your own Bibles, if you have them, or underneath the seat in front of you, if you want to follow along. We're going to go to John chapter 9. I'm going to read the entire chapter for us first. So, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, 
but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, a man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Verse 24, so for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will... God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see 
may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Let's bow our heads again. I want to pray one more time. Father, quicken your word to our hearts. We rest in the assurance that every word, every jot and tittle of your word was inspired through the Holy Spirit. We rest that it is given now for us today and is as applicable as it was when it was given to those authors thousands of years ago. Father, your word is unchanging as you are unchanging, and we can completely rely on you. Father, tune our ears to your Holy Spirit today. Have him talk directly to us and give us the strength and the will to turn towards you and obey that spirit. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So let's jump into this. I mentioned three spots. Whoops. The first section that we'll cover is verses 1 to 12. And that is to talk about the cure itself and what we can learn from that section. I'll tell you right now that there are two aspects of this cure we want to look at. The first is just the, the cure that you'll probably read the first time you read this. Everything about its physical nature, things that are tangible, things that you can see. But there's a much larger lesson there that Jesus is teaching behind the scenes, and that's in the spiritual nature. So when we look just at some of the physical nature, what are the things that jump out to us? First thing that we notice is that there was no one in the world who could do anything for this man. He was born blind. We have no exact knowledge of the medical condition that caused him to be blind. But certainly in the day and time that he was born, there was no hope for him. He was utterly hopeless. He would be blind his entire life. And it was something that both he and his parents faced very early on. No one even questioned that. Right? Not the physicians of the day or the spiritual leaders. Right? And then to add insult to injury, the beliefs of the day, the teaching of the religious leaders came right behind and said that if someone was born blind like this, then it must be the result of sin. But they go further and say it must be the result of someone's personal sin. So the teaching is, right, there's a cause and an effect. Now I can identify with this because in some twisted way in my uh, early childhood, in my family, we also had some offsetting theology that wasn't exactly to it. And my mom used to say all the time, like, if I was walking through the room and I would stub my toe on the table, right, she would say, oh, God punished you. Right? And what it set up for a child was that every bad thing happens, right, because of something I did. So if something bad happened in my life, it must have been something that I did to deserve that. And that was sort of my thought process. If you really admit to yourself, a lot of that leaks into all of us. Right? Where am I responsible? Where are things happening? How does that come into play? 
Jesus' disciples asked him specifically about that. Right? And this man, if we say sin is the result and there's an accountability there, who did the sinning? And they were probably even more curious. It doesn't write it in here, but it would likely that they would say, and kind of like, what sin was that? Right? That would cause you to be blind for your entire life. Seems like such a harsh judgment, right? You would have to have such a harsh sin. And what does Jesus answer? It's not his. Right? Not him. Not his parents either. Right? That had to rock them. Maybe the first time they're hearing that. And he goes on and he says, this person is blind so that it can display the works of God. And he says, I'm here to do something about it. Now that major shift is a shift that's echoed through the entire Bible. Starts very early on in the Old Testament and continues through. That shift... Whoops, I did it again, didn't I? That shift... It's not cooperating technology how wonderful i heard the gremlins were here last week with the sound so now we must have gremlins with my bees excellent yep so romans 3:23 to 24 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in christ jesus so in that type of theology Everybody should be born blind. Right? We all sinned. Everybody should be born blind. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Wow. Right? We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. So, in some ways... The Pharisees of the day were not incorrect. Blindness, infirmity, everything that takes us less than the design of God had initially is the result of sin, the original sin in the garden that takes everything away. But it is not a direct result of someone's actions. Could be, but not all. We're also told that unless you would think or elevate yourself to say, well, I have a pretty good life, I must be doing everything right. The other side, that even us who would do our very best, our righteous deeds are still like a polluted garment to God. Some of you are like, Bill, that's a downer of a message. Where are you going with this? Right? No, it's really putting us in proper perspective to God. Romans 3, again, back in verses 10 to 12, says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So I'm here to tell you, one of the lessons that's put out here right off the bat, right, is that we don't deserve what we get in Christ. Make sure you take that and really think about that. <laughs> you can't even begin to fathom grace, which is unmerited favor, until you understand that it's unmerited. 
What happens if you allow yourself to start thinking you've earned it in some way, shape, or form, and even the smallest bit? Then you start immediately with that comparison, right? I've earned it. This person over here who's less fortunate, they must have done something bad. That's the easy, right? Or you know what? They're living in squalor and poverty, and it's all their fault. They get what they deserve. Because your philosophy, your theology of God, is that you get what you deserve when the reality is we get an abundance of what we don't deserve through him. No one deserves any blessing. We all deserve condemnation. Verse 3, Jesus' answer reflects this. He says, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. What's all this mention to work? You notice that? Work, work, work. Right? Where's work's coming in? Bill, didn't you just tell me things that are like anti-works, right? Doesn't matter what you do, you're getting this grace, and this guy, doesn't matter what he did. This is Jesus directly attacking the Sabbath. I remember as we go forward, he talks about that in the Sabbath. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment or two. But Jesus is saying, the teaching of the day also says that I can't do any work on the Sabbath. Well, guess what? I'm here to do the work that God has me set for, for today. And that work is in this man. So follow on with me. Isaiah 43, 7 says that everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, who I formed and made. So not only do we have this undeserved favor, but we exist at the will of God for what? To glorify him, right? To make his greatness known, to make his graces known. If we have any catechism fans in here, Right? In the Westminster Confession, there's a question and answer type session, and it says, what is the chief aim of man? Right? And in that chief aim of man, I'm not going to tell you at all. You'll have to go look it up. This will be one for the Bereans can take home. But the main part of that says to glorify God. Right? As a part of our chief aim, there's the worship part and the other things that we do too. But look it up. In Daniel... Chapter 4, verse 35, it says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Now, Bill, why are you telling me this again? This is like kind of a Debbie Downer thing that you're going through. No, the reason I'm telling you this is because every other thing in society today will tell you this is wrong. Every other thing in society today will tell you you have to stick up for yourself. You have to stand up. You have to make your own way in life. Forge your path. Right? And what is society doing? It's telling you that you are a little Lord. You are a little God. Right? And you have to take it all in. And you, me and you and everyone else, are at the center of the universe. And God is not. Jesus directly attacks that in John's gospel and says, oh no, 
Everything else is peripheral. God is at the center. His will is at the center. His sovereignty is at the center of everything. And man has a place in this creation order. Psalms 135, 6-7 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps, He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from His storehouses. Why do I share this with you? Surveys tell us that one of the biggest questions that we have today and that people have when it comes to God and their theology and how they think about him is why do bad things happen to good people? Right? You ever hear that? The problem with that question is the context is wrong. The premise is wrong. I just showed you through all of these that there are no good people. The Bible tells us that every single one of us turns to his own way. What does good people tell us? It's a pecking order. Right back to the Pharisees. There's good people and there's bad people. Right? And then your mind just keeps going if you're going to go down there and pull that thread. Right? And a good theology of God just unravels like a sweater that you're just pulling off. That's why it's designed. Things happen to people exactly why Christ said it does. To prove the glory of God and in His will. Because He's at the center. He's in control. This is not a theology of Thomas Jefferson. Now, Thomas Jefferson had so many things in his life that we admire. right? As one of the founders of this great nation, Thomas Jefferson did so much for us. But Thomas Jefferson also went through his Bible and cut out things that he didn't like, and wrote in some other things in the Bible. I think that's the first problem, right, with his theology. But the second problem with his theology is he was very vocal, and he said, you know what, Genesis, all true, God created everything, and then he leaves us alone, and he stands up there like some uninterested party and just lets things happen. Right? So don't blame God for everything, because, you know, none of it's his fault. Yeah, it's twisted. Pulled the thread and everything unravels. Right. A correct theology is one that is faithful to biblical inerrancy. You have to get your theology from the Bible. It wouldn't be a Bill sermon without this. <laughs> Got to get my R.C. Sproul quote in. Seth, FYI, I'm up to 15 in a row now, so we're going there. But R.C. Sproul who's an American theologian, or was, an American theologian, pastor, founder, Ligonier Ministries, a wonderful teacher for a long time, says it this way, and it is so eloquent, I had to put it in here. He says, the clearest sensation that a human being has when he experiences the holy is an overpowering and overwhelming sense of creatureliness. That is, when we are in the presence of God, we are humbled and become most aware of ourselves as creatures. This is the opposite of Satan's original temptation. You shall be as gods. Remember? God said you can eat of the fruit of any tree in this garden except for this one. The tree of knowledge of life and death. Right? Don't, don't eat this. 
And what does Satan say to the woman? Oh, surely God didn't say that. Really? He said that because you know if you do, you'll be like God. And that's the temptation. And that's the temptation that each of us face over and over and over again. There's a saying that says, the problem with us offering ourselves as living sacrifices, which we know we're to do as part of our Christian life, right, is that the sacrifice keeps crawling off the altar. And it's absolutely true. We do that, right? Maybe when it's really bad, and maybe, like Danny said, when you're on that operating table, <laughs> right, and somebody's doing something to your eyes, that's when you really appreciate and call out for God. Right? There's a lot of people who come right to that point in their whole life where they're just living it, and then they're just about to die, and at that moment before death, they call out for God. Right? You realize how much of a creature you are and how much you need Him at those moments and times. There's a saying that there are no atheists in foxholes, and that's why. Right? You start to get this perspective back again. So, that's the physical aspects of the cure. But what about that spiritual parallel? And I just kind of want to go through this so that you see it. So the man himself had characteristics of a lost person. What is that? He was blind. Now, blindness in the Bible, wherever you look, always, always corresponds not just to the physically blind, but to not being able to see something. And in many cases, it was a knowledge blind. It's the same way we would say, oh, she can't see that because she's blind to it. Right? We don't mean she's blind physically. We mean she can't see that. She's prevented from seeing it. She doesn't have the ability to see it. And that's the thought here, that this is a person who is physically blind, but he can't see the Savior. He wasn't informed. He didn't know him. Right? He didn't see those things of spiritual nature. He was begging. That would have been his only means of living. Right? His friends confirmed that. They saw him all the time. He is a man who definitely knew that his life was not in his own hands. In order for him to exist at that time, in order for him to survive, his only chance to make a living of sorts was to beg and ask for it. He understood what it was to be, to be needy in a way that many of us will never understand. And then next, he was totally helpless. It's not like he could do anything to cure his own blindness. Right? It wasn't that he was overweight. He could start watching his diet and uh, slim down. Ouch, I just hurt myself. Anyway, right? he had no power whatsoever to do anything about his blindness. And that's the point that Jesus comes to him. The cure shows us how Christ saves the lost. Jesus came to the man with grace. He didn't deserve it. It's unmerited favor, right? God had preordained that this man was going to get healed from his blindness at this moment when Jesus walks by with his disciples. Already preordained, already there. Next, what's he do? He irritates the man with mud and dirt. Oh, he takes this. And think about this a second. You can go by this pretty quick, right? When you look at the method of the cure, he spits into the ground, grabs some of that dust and dirt, makes mud, and rubs it on the guy's eyes. Does that sound good to anybody? 
Me, I turn into like a, a two-year-old baby as soon as I get a speck of dust in my eye. Right? Oh my gosh, get this out of here. I can't believe this. He had mud caked on in his eyes. He was blind, but his eyes weren't without feeling. It's an irritant. How many of us, if we look at our history, who's made a decision with Christ, came to that because of an irritant in our life first? Maybe things aren't going the way you think they should go. Right? Maybe it causes you like that person in a foxhole to go, ooh, I'm helpless, I'm begging for my life here. Right? But God allows those things to come into your life through grace to start turning your heart, to prepare you to be had. And some of you may have walked in here and you're being prepared to hear this gospel message. Right? The week that happened before here, all kinds of things were happening. You're getting mud in your eyes all over the place and how you think about God. Maybe some of you are really wrestling with this thing about how can a good God do this to good people? Whatever it was, there's this irritant first that drives you towards it. And praise God for that irritant. It's part of his grace. Next, the man listened to him. So he told him, go and wash in the pool once he put it in. man could have said, oh, you fool, and started washing it right there. But no, he went. He went and listened to the Lord and did exactly as he said. And then finally, he gave the man sight. He could see new things. So let's take this in the spiritual way. Christ comes to us when we are most at need, turns us, converts our hearts, heals them, takes that hard, broken heart that we may have, heals it, changes it into something new, and then all of a sudden, the world lights up in new different ways for you. You see things differently. In my own personal story, before I was saved, I used to be a lector at church, in the Catholic Church. And I would read the gospel, literally, I would do it every weekday for four years straight when I was in school, and I would literally be reading this to the congregation every day, and they would go through. So I went through the Bible at least four times completely, beginning to end, and it meant nothing to me but words. I didn't understand it. I didn't know that it applied for me. It meant nothing because it was just me and my own power doing those things. Now, after I was saved, every single word had life. Every single word was now a bright sun. Every single word of God was revealing something to me about him. It was a brand new life. I was raised from the dead just like Lazarus was, but in a spiritual way. I was cured from my blindness in exactly the same way. Why do we sing an amazing grace, right? I once was blind, but now I see. It's the same exact thing. Okay. But let's go on, because not everybody reacts the same way the blind man did. So when you look through that, the second part here that I want you to see, the first part was the cure. The second part's the conflict. So how do people react to this good news? Has anyone found out that if you go and you talk to people about Christ, they react differently? Oh yeah, right? Sometimes people react hostily to that. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. In verse 13, it says, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, 
He put mud on my eyes. I washed and I see. A couple things I want you to see in this passage. First off, they brought him to the Pharisees. This probably wasn't the first thing they did. Right? We had in earlier passages, you could see his friends saying, who is this man? Right? Some of them said, can't be the same guy because nobody gets healed from blindness. It's got to be his doppelganger. Right? It's got to be his twin or something that we didn't know about. And they're like, no, it's him. The man said, no, it's me. I'm the one who sat there all the time. I just can see now. But imagine how many times this man had to tell the story before he ever got to the Pharisees. Have you ever had that, something happen in your life? And it almost gets irritating to tell people the story over and over again. They kind of take you around, right? Let me take you over here. Tell them the story again. And you're like, oh, here we go again, right? You just want to record the story. And like, okay, here, let me play it for you. I think he's, in the Bible being so real as it is, I think he's a little bit irritated here. Because by the time he gets to the Pharisees, that short story is really short, isn't it? He's like, look, he put mud in my eyes, I washed, I see. What more do you need to know? Right to the point and straight down to it. The second thing I want you to kind of think about in here is the Pharisees get a well-deserved bad reputation many times. But I don't want you to think about that here because they're doing their job here. As religious leaders, they want to protect their flock from wolves. Right? They don't want people coming in with heresy. And so you have these leaders hearing about this and the influence it's having on people and wanting to check it out themselves and people bringing it to their leaders. It's a good behavior. They're doing their job when they come in here. But then there's a little bit more that happens because of that. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. What are they doing? They have a theology that if this man is from God, then he won't just keep one thing of God, he will keep all things of God. So if we find something that he's not doing right, he couldn't be from God. That's actually a sound way to test something. Right? If this man is the son of God, then he will do nothing but the will of the Father. The problem, again, is what are they doing? They're putting themselves on the throne above the Lord. And you go, but how else could they figure it out, right? They actually go too far, and they've elevated their traditions as high as the law of the Lord or the works of the Father. So the traditions that they added on in religious traditions about the Sabbath, they made just as important as anything else that's covered in the Bible directly from the Word of God. That's their big challenge from here. I love Kevin DeYoung. He's a pastor, a theologian, one of my absolute favorite authors. If you get a chance to pick up a book from him, outstanding, outstanding writer. He says this, and I love it. He says, rather than it, the Sabbath, being a day of rest and worship, a day for doing good, a day for healing, it had become a day with dozens and dozens of rules and strictures and fine, fine details. And so in their judgment, Jesus had broken their traditions that we had not actually violated the fourth commandment. Right? What's the fourth commandment? Keep holy the Sabbath. Sabbath was holy. He was doing the holy work of his father. Sorry for a minute there. I thought it was one of the old Wesselhoff tricks to call me during the during service. <laughs> anyway, 
Um, right? So he had not violated that. He kept holy the Sabbath. He did the Father's work on the Sabbath. He displayed grace. He gave a gospel message on the Sabbath, all in one that was preordained. Now, when they go to the Pharisees, though, and walk through there, right, there was this huge disconnect. Some of them wanted to believe, and you can see, because it says, right, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Some of them clipped right onto the truth. He has to be from God in order to do something this miraculous, right? And they clipped onto that. Well, what about the stuff in the purple? What's wrong with those Pharisees? Can't they see that? And how miraculous and know that this is God. It says that the Jews, when you go on to 18, did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received sight. So what are we seeing here? They did not believe that he had been born blind. Wait a minute, that's different than the criteria they were just using. Now they're adding something else. They're looking for a different way out because half of them are saying something that's irreputable. Right? They can't ignore the fact that this miracle happened now. So what are they looking for? They're looking for an out. And that tells us and represents the type of people that you will find when sharing your faith. There are some that are not receptive to the message of the gospel. And with everything you say, they will be looking for a reason not to believe. You can't change them. doesn't matter how skillful your argument doesn't matter how miraculous the news is in front of them or what you can share to them. So you shouldn't put that pressure on yourself. You shouldn't strive to that level. Why? My chief aim is to glorify God. I will strive to level to do all the work that he has for me. Same as the example we get in Christ, right? But I will also strive to pray, Lord, change their heart. Lord, heal them. And if you're trying to convince someone, a family, a friend of this, and you have that missing component that you're not saying, Lord, change their heart, and you're not just as excited and just as fervent and just as definitive and have your mind made up and enthusiastic about sharing the gospel with them but not praying that God change their heart first, you're not going to succeed. God does the work, and he just lets us in on it. But he goes on, and what about his parents? How do they react? Right? His parents say, oh, ask him. They deflect. And why do they deflect? It tells us in the end, right, they already knew that if they said anything, the Jews are putting them out. So they're afraid of man. And this brings the second type of person that you're going to see. And that's those who are afraid of consequences. You know what? If I talk about Jesus at work, my employer doesn't want me to talk about Jesus at work. Something could happen to me, right? Now, I've got to respect his wishes. Yeah, you're respecting the wishes of authority. All authority is God-ordained. I get it. Right, but what are you doing there? You're really reacting to the fear of man and consequences. You're not in control of your life. We just said it. God is. So if he gives you the opportunity to do his work on a Sabbath or in a condition right, that's not there... You've got to do his work and trust him. Right? Maybe you don't want to do it because of how your Uncle Tobias right, at uh, Thanksgiving is always on Christians. 
And so when he starts, Uncle Tobias starts, you just slink out of the room. Right? And you can tell yourself, oh, I just want to avoid the conflict. I don't like the conflict that comes from it. It's exactly what they were doing. Right? Or you can be winsome, you can be kind, but you can be strong. Right? You can say, I was helpless. He irritated me, came to me, changed my life, created the conditions, told me to go wash. I washed in him, and now I see. Right? And then I'm praying for my Uncle Tobias. <laughs> Kevin DeYoung says this. He says, when hearts are hard, they can be very hard. You might think to yourself, well, if I could just see Jesus face to face, then it would be so easy for me to believe. They had Jesus right in front of them, but instead look for reasons to disbelieve. Not going to change them, but God can. All right, I think, uh, worship team, do you have a final song too? If you guys want to make your way back to the stage, I'll wrap through this. So in 24 to 33, we have this section where they go back to the man again and say, tell us again, looking for something else in the reason. They know it's not going to change. His testimony ain't going to change. But they want to try to find something to trip him up that makes it easier for them. And when they can't, how do they react? It says here in the bottom, it says, right, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Oh, wait a minute. In his testimony, he just really put us on the spot. As they go through and he goes back through it, there's actually three things that the man does. In verse 25, he retells the story. Hadn't changed, completely consistent, it is the truth. In verse 27, he tests their motives. Do you also want to become his disciples? Oh, that hurts, right? The third, he says he hits them with logic. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They can't. They can't punch a hole in anything that he said. They're completely confronted and trapped by it. And how do they answer him? You were born in utter sin. Every one of us as a Christian faces that, right? You are the intolerant one. That's really big today, right? You are the one that's archaic. You are the one that has irrational beliefs. It all comes back. It's just classic, right? When you don't have an argument then accuse the person who's winning the argument. Impugn their nature. It's exactly what they do. But the last part is that confession. And what I want you to see in verse 35, Jesus heard they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Jesus went to him again. He didn't just leave the man, convert the man, change the man, and leave the man to himself. He went to him again and embraced him. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe? So all through this point, staying close to his testimony, everything, the man still hadn't fully had a confession of faith in Christ. He was just sharing his story, telling the truth, walking through. Right? But he says, Jesus says to him, you have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you now. And the man comes up with the shortest confession unto salvation in the Bible. He says, Lord, I believe. The Lord portion of it, right off the bat, obviously says, you are now my master. You are now my Lord, and I believe. Romans 10, 9 to 11 tells us, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Jesus said he came into the world for judgment, right? So those who do not see may see, and those who may become blind. He's separating those who are meant to save from those who are meant right, for eternal damnation. Which one are you? Maybe you came in here today with that irritant and you're ready to make a decision for Christ. I would pray that you would pray and mean it to him exactly the same way the blind man did. Lord, my new master, my new president, not necessarily just a resident, right? Take control of my life. I give it all to you. I relinquish my control, right? I believe you are the son of God who came here to save me who came here to pay for sins upon the cross, to redeem the lost, to open the eyes of the blind. Quick word here. Bow your heads. Heavenly Father, today as we hear your gospel, your spirit points out to us things that we have to answer for. Help us to answer, Father, like the blind man in faith, to see the reality, the truth, and simply respond, accepting your grace and making you our Lord. Father, keep us from being like the Pharisees, justifying things our own way, looking for loopholes, Father, looking for reasons not to believe. Help us look for those things that are so obvious to who you are and what you want to do in our lives and what you want us to do in the lives of others. Father, we praise you, we worship you, we rightly give you glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.